Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Biden's announcement today that he will pardon all federal offences of simple marijuana possession. Joining us is John Hudak, Deputy Director of the Centre for Effective Public Management and a Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. His research focuses on presidential power and public policy, as well as on state and federal marijuana policy. He's the author of Presidential Pork, White House Influence Over the Distribution of Federal Grants, and Marijuana, A Short History. And we will discuss how Biden's move will only pardon those convicted of federal crimes and not the vast majority who have been convicted under state laws. However, today's move towards decriminalization has overwhelming bipartisan support, and it will be a winning campaign issue in races like the U.S. Senate race in Pennsylvania, where the Democrat John Fetterman has championed legalization of personal possession of marijuana and the unfairness and injustice of the disproportionate conviction of minorities. Then we'll look into the breathtaking hypocrisy of the so-called Christian evangelical base of the Republican Party, who are doubling down with their support for a brazen liar and a serial sinner, Trump's candidate for the U.S. Senate in Georgia, Herschel Walker, and speak with Anthea Butler, the Geraldine R. Siegel Professor in American Social Thought and Chair of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. She's the author of a number of books, including The Rise of the New Religious Right, and her most recent book is White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. Then finally, we'll assess what appears to be this election year's October surprise with the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and his mentor Vladimir Putin colluding to raise the price of gas ahead of the midterm election to hurt Biden and the Democrats and help bring back Trump to the presidency in 2024. Joining us from the UK is David Hurst, the editor of The Middle East Eye, who formerly was a chief foreign leader writer of The Guardian, former associate foreign editor, European editor, Moscow bureau chief, European correspondent and Ireland correspondent of The Guardian. We'll discuss calls from Senator Murphy and Congressman Malinowski to cut ties with our so-called ally, Saudi Arabia, for actions, quote, designed to hurt the United States and our allies and to help Russia, despite President Biden's overtures. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is John Hudak, who's a Deputy Director of the Center for Effective Public Management and a Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. His research focuses on presidential power and public policy, as well as on state and federal marijuana policy. And he's the author of Presidential Pork, White House Influence Over the Distribution of Federal Grants, and Marijuana, A Short History. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Hudak. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And today, uh, President Biden announced that he is pardoning all federal offenses for simple marijuana possession as a first major step towards decriminalization. And, of course, this only affects federal sentences, right? Uh, Most people in jail for marijuana possession, I take it, are in jail as a result of state and local jurisdictions. Uh, That's correct. The president's pardon power only extends to federal crimes. It doesn't extend... Uh, to state crimes, which, as you noted, uh, is the vast majority of uh, punishments for uh, simple possession. Although what's important about the president's move today is that it does not simply uh, address individuals who have cases currently pending, uh, but all individuals who face those crimes and so uh, face charges for those crimes. And so it does extend to a, a fairly decent number of individuals. 
And, I mean, apparently President Biden himself was pretty reluctant. He he was personally skeptical about decriminalization. He did make a campaign promise that he would do what he's doing now. But apparently he's, from what I understand, he's operating operating out of a sense of fairness, that it's unfair that certain racial groups should be given disproportionate sentences. The president's words today reflected exactly that, the reality in the United States that uh, black and brown Americans are arrested for and are convicted at uh, much higher rates than white Americans are for cannabis possession charges and other cannabis charges, um, despite usage rates among those groups uh, being equal. And yes, it's, uh, it's clear from the president's record that he's not someone who is a strong supporter of cannabis reform or other types of drug reform, uh, but he is doing, as you noted, uh, uh, fulfilling campaign promises around this, ones that he made on the campaign trail as a presidential candidate in 2020, and, and finally that's coming to fruition. And on the campaign trail in 2020, he said, no one should be in jail because of marijuana. As president, I will decriminalize cannabis use and automatically expunge prior convictions. So how far did he go along in terms of that promise today? Well, the promise to decriminalize uh, cannabis is, uh, is, in fact, a process. And so if the, the president has now rather um, asked the Secretary of Health and Human Services to begin to reconsider uh, cannabis's scheduling, uh, that is the, the manner in which the federal government uh, classifies cannabis and the associated criminal charges, potential criminal charges that go with it. Uh, and so that process will begin. He's asked uh, the HHS secretary to expedite that process. Uh, but it is, of course, an administrative process uh, that takes time. The president could take an additional step uh, and ask that the attorney general refuse to prosecute low-level cannabis offenses. Uh, I think that is a step that we might see in the future. Uh, but ultimately, the president is is very clearly delivering on uh, several of the promises he made as a candidate. Well, he's also promised not to interfere with the Department of Justice, right? So how is he going to approach uh, Merrick Garland on this without breaking that promise? So the, the president uh, could have um, uh, very directly uh, asked the attorney general not to uh, enforce low-level cannabis crimes. He chose not to do that. What I think the president has done today is signaled to the attorney general what presidential priorities are. Uh, and I think it's a careful line that the president is walking, one that respects uh, the independence of the Justice Department, uh, and one uh, that uh, appreciates that the attorney general uh, is a presidential appointee. And so I wouldn't be surprised if in the coming weeks or months, uh, the attorney general announces a uh, decision not to enforce uh, that area of law, particularly in light of the president, uh, the presidential decision to pardon individuals who have been charged with those crimes in the past. He has the power uh, or, or the ability uh, to say that directly, publicly to the attorney general. But this is a way of signaling his intentions without trying to interfere directly with the Justice Department. And just to quote what the president said today, in a video announcement, no one should be in jail for just using or possessing marijuana. It's legal in many states and criminal records for marijuana possession have led to needless barriers to employment, housing and education opportunities. And that's before you address the racial disparities around who suffers the consequences. While white and black and brown people use marijuana at similar rates, black and brown people are arrested, prosecuted and convicted at disproportionate rates. Too many lives have been upended because of our failed approach to marijuana. It's time that we right these wrongs. So I suspect, uh, John, and you study this issue in depth and, of course, uh, have written the book, uh, Marijuana, A Short History, that this might be popular. I mean, it's a popular issue, marijuana decriminalization, both with Republicans and Democrats, isn't it? Yes, this is an extremely popular issue. So what we know is that uh, more than uh, two-thirds of Americans support uh, legalization of cannabis. An even higher number of individuals uh, support the federal government not uh, enforcing the types of laws that are on the books. Uh, that includes a majority of Republicans, independents, and Democrats. And so this is a move uh, that not just delivers on a presidential campaign promise, uh, but a move that reflects 
the will of the American people uh, and is pushing the federal government in the direction uh, of keeping up with uh, where most Americans are on this issue. Well, apparently uh, this is an important issue for the Senate candidate, the Democrat running in Pennsylvania, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman. I take it that he's he's been uh, weighing in on the White House. Is that your understanding? Uh, yes, he's been quite clear. Uh, John Fetterman, the Democratic nominee for Senate in Pennsylvania, has been quite clear uh, that he spoke to the president uh, before a campaign rally in Pennsylvania a few weeks ago, that he pressed the president on this issue. And while I think most voters in Pennsylvania, uh, have, ma- if they are going to make up their mind in that Senate race based on uh, the issue of cannabis, they have already made their mind up. Uh, this could be a powerful signal to voters uh, that John Fetterman, even before getting to the Senate, already has the ear of the president and has some influence within the White House. And that could be a signal uh, that is quite powerful uh, moving forward. So specifically, tell us about how you changed the 1970s Control Substance Act. This is a this is a clear process that is written into the statute, uh, but it is a complicated process. So the Secretary of Health and Human Services is initiating a petition with the Attorney General and both the Justice Department through the Drug Enforcement Agency and the uh, Department of Health and Human Services through the Food and Drug Administration uh, will study the issue and they will make recommendations to both the Secretary of Health and Human Services and the Attorney General. Uh, The Secretary of HHS will then deliver a recommendation to the Attorney General, and then the decision rests with the Attorney General, whether to change the scheduling, uh, whether to remove cannabis from the federal schedules. Uh, And if he chooses to do that, then a regulatory process will begin. It would likely begin with a type of emergency regulation that advances his decision, uh, and and then a final regulation would be promulgated at some point. So it can be it can be a longer uh, process, uh, but there are examples in our history of much more expedited processes. Uh, and so it's unclear what the timeline would be, but it is clear that the pro- president wants this done quickly. And the Secretary of Health and Human Services, while he was a member of the United States Congress, showed himself to be a strong supporter of cannabis reform. And so my guess is we'll see some change on this. But as we speak, John Hudak, marijuana is listed on Schedule 1, meaning it's no different in terms of the law than heroin. That's largely true. Um, uh, In some cases, uh, with federal sentencing guidelines, there can be differences in the types of sentences individuals would face between uh, those two substances. Uh, But yes, in terms of uh, the type of uh, scheduling that it has, uh, uh, cannabis and heroin are considered illegal in all circumstances except federally approved research. Uh, and uh, the decision by the president today is the first step in changing that. So in moving towards decriminalization at the federal level, that probably will affect some of the state laws. For example, here in the state of California, the legal marijuana shops, and there is a distinction, John, between those that are licensed by the state and the illegal ones, which are largely run by uh, Russian and Armenian organized crime, and they are making life incredibly difficult for the legal ones because they undercut their prices. Uh, And because of federal law, legal marijuana vendors in the state of California have to operate in cash. So could that change if the feds change the uh, laws? Well, it depends on what uh, the federal government chooses to do. If the federal government moves cannabis from uh, Schedule 1 to Schedule 2 or Schedule 1 to Schedule 3, uh, the legal, the state legal operators would still face the same challenges uh, around banking. Uh, the uh, reality is that, that moving cannabis from one schedule to another simply uh, makes it easier for research to be done into that substance, but it doesn't change uh, the reality that uh, state legal cannabis operators in the United States uh, are operating in violation of federal law. That is true regardless of what the schedule uh, cannabis is on, unless 
cannabis is removed from the federal schedules entirely. Uh, if the Attorney General and the Secretary of Health and Human Services chooses uh, to remove cannabis from the schedules, it would loosen some of those burdens, most of those burdens that state legal operators are facing. But simply moving it among the schedules doesn't change anything for those operators. And what's the likelihood of that happening? It's fairly unclear. I, I do think that there is likely a a preference within the Justice Department, and there would probably be a preference within the Food and Drug Administration uh, to keep uh, cannabis on the federal schedules at, at some number. Uh, I doubt that the agencies that would review this would be uh, terribly eager to uh, remove it from the schedules entirely, particularly because those same agencies dealt with this issue just six years ago, uh, and they chose not to move cannabis from Schedule 1 at all. And I can't imagine much has changed within those agencies. Uh, but of course, if the president is looking uh, seriously to move this, uh, that influence can be felt throughout the federal government. But I think it remains to be seen uh, what the chances of full-scale uh, removal of cannabis from the schedules and, and thus uh, full-scale legalization would mean would be. So, John, let me just quickly ask the producer about the timing. Uh, Graham, how much time do we have left? Um, we can go for 18 minutes, so another four, another question or two. Another four? Three o'clock, three o'clock Pacific. Yeah, another four until three o'clock. Okay, here we go. So, uh, John Hudak, in terms of people in jail now for simple marijuana, marijuana possession under federal law, what are the consequences? Are people going to be let out of jail soon? I think it uh, it all depends on uh, what the president's order actually looks like. Uh, we have heard from the president, uh, but uh, the actual order, the actual action from the president uh, is likely forthcoming, or at least at the time of this taping, uh, I have not seen uh, the order yet. If uh, the president does uh, pardon uh, anybody currently uh, in jail uh, or, or pen and or pending uh a trial for low-level cannabis charges. Uh, there is a process uh, by which individuals would be uh, essentially deregistered uh, from the Bureau of Prison system, uh, but that process can uh, happen quite quickly. And for those individuals who uh, either did not serve time in jail uh, or have completed their sentence, uh, that pardon would take effect immediately. So, is there resistance to we, we established earlier that this is a bipartisan issue that both majority of Democrats and majority of Republicans favor decriminalization of marijuana? Who's against it? Well, you know, I, I think there are uh, some individuals uh, in our society who take a very hard line uh, on drug policy. There are still individuals uh, in our society who believe in the myth of cannabis as a gateway uh, substance, a myth that has been disproven over and over. Uh, and so surely there will be some opposition uh, to the president's decision today. I think in our politics today, uh, there is going to be opposition uh, to what uh, any president does at any time. Uh, but we're talking about a very small minority of individuals who would oppose this type of move uh, on its substance. Well, I know this is not an accurate scientific analogy, but if you watch all of these police dramas, it seems like the police like to be able to bust people over marijuana to use it as leverage for something else. So is there any kind of polling amongst the police in this country, how they feel about marijuana possession and use? Yeah, so we have some polling uh, about police officers' views on legalization, and they tend to reflect what the view of the general public is. About two-thirds of uh, police officers support uh, changing our nation's cannabis laws. Now, police leadership, uh, who uses uh, the fines and fees and penalties from cannabis uh, arrests to help balance their budgets, uh, tend to have a different position on it uh, but in general, uh, from the polling that, that I've seen, the, the accurate polling that's out there, uh, everyday beat police officers uh, are not looking to continue the war on drugs when it comes to cannabis. Well, John Hudak, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. 
And again, I've been speaking with John Hudak, who's the Deputy Director of the Centre for Effective Public Management and a Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. His research focuses on presidential power and public policy, as well as on state and federal marijuana policy. And he's the author of Presidential Pork, White House Influence Over the Distribution of Federal Grants, and Marijuana, A Short History. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into the breathtaking hypocrisy of the so-called Christian evangelical base of the Republican Party who are doubling down with their support for a brazen liar and a serial sinner, Trump's candidate for the U.S. Senate in Georgia, Herschel Walker. And you may see me tonight with an illegal smile. It don't cost very much, but it lasts a long while. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Anthea Butler, the Geraldine R. Siegel Professor in American Social Thought and Chair of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. She's the author of a number of books, including The Rise of the New Religious Right, and her most recent book is White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anthea Butler. Thank you so much, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And the Senate race in Georgia is uh, obviously a critical one with uh, Raphael Warnock, who is a genuine Christian minister, Ebenezer Baptist Church. You you can't get much better than that. Uh, He's up against a former football player chosen by Donald Trump, Herschel Walker, who has obviously so far on the campaign trail has appeared to be spectacularly ignorant about almost everything. But now... These scandals are piling up, and of course he supports Lindsey Graham's total federal ban on abortion without exceptions. So if the Republicans, and particularly the evangelical base, believe that abortion is murder, why are they letting uh, Herschel Walker not just get away with murder, but they're rewarding him with uh, an influx of campaign donations? because they want to win at any cost. I think one of the things that is very hard and difficult for people to understand is that the people who supposedly are for uh, God and family and country and don't want babies to die are actually the people who really don't care about abortions and they don't care that their candidate has paid for an abortion. They don't really care because they want to win the Senate. And this is where I think my book is really instructive for people, that they need to understand that evangelicals have used morality both as a shield to protect them from people realizing that what they're really into is power, and secondarily, that it doesn't matter if their people have sins, so to speak, and I put this in quotation mark because I don't think abortion is a sin, I put that as to say that the rules are for you, the rules are not for them. And once you understand that about evangelicals, then it's much easier to understand them as a religio-political movement as opposed to a religious movement with some kind of moral center. Well, that's pretty much what Dana Loesch, who's the former NRA spokeswoman, and she's now currently a radio host, she said in defense of, uh, of Walker that he could have bought endangered baby eagles, but I want to control the Senate, and you should too. So there you have it. But isn't it, if you look at the people that are running for office on the Republican ticket for this upcoming election, it's pretty clear that, again, power is more important. That You can actually make the argument that they're against democracy because over half of the candidates running for office in November on the Republican side 299 of them are election deniers, denying that Biden won in 2020. So exactly, exactly. It's the anti-democratic party. So I don't understand why the Democrats can't make it clear that they're running for democracy against a party that's against democracy. Because Democrats have a problem with messaging. And they also have a problem with understanding what they're actually really up against. I think 
that those numbers are frightening and they should be frightening to anybody who wants democracy and who thinks democracy is valuable. I think the other thing is, is that, you know, evangelicals had you all snookered for a long time because they talked a lot about religious freedom. Well, religious freedom was not about democracy. Religious freedom was about them being able to rule with their particular brand of Christianity. And once you understand that, then you understand that they are more into authoritarianism than they are into democracy. And so it doesn't really matter that, you know, that you have a Herschel Walker or that over 200 people who are running for office don't believe in the um, uh, the rights and the democracy and they won't accept the um, outcome of an election and they don't accept the outcome of the 2020 election. What you have to realize is you're not dealing with rational people anymore. And as such, this presents an existential threat to democracy in America. And I think that with all the ratcheting up of the kind of language of demonizing Democrats and talking about evil and making everything religious, that we are headed for some really difficult times. And it would behoove everyone to pay attention to what is being said and not just laugh it off. Well, the evidence not really needed against Herschel Walker is just so extraordinary. The most powerful of which, by the way, is his own son who was apparently a popular young Republican uh, on social media. This is his 23-year-old son, Christian. And he said on social media that every family member of Herschel Walker asked him not to run for office because that we all knew of his past. Every single one. He decided to give us the middle finger and air out all his dirty laundry in public while simultaneously lying about it. I'm done. And then he went on to say that his father had four kids, four different women, wasn't in the house, raising one of them. He was out having sex with other women. Do you care about family values? I mean, this is the amazing part, is that the, the most trenchant critic of Herschel Walker on the Republican side, where you've got people like Senator Rick Scott, the head of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, defending him, saying what a great guy he is, the only person that's really the best and most trenchant critic is his own son. Yeah. And I mean, that that's an indictment, right? I'm sure that his son has probably lost a lot of Republican followers between the time he said those things about his father and today, because, you know, Republicans have been on his case as well. And I think that you're not going to hear this kind of trenchant criticism of Herschel Walker from Republicans because they don't care. And it's obvious that, you know, for all this young man's foibles that he has been really hurt by his father. But again, they don't care that this is not a family man. They don't care that this is a man who paid for abortion and that the Daily Beast has the receipts. What they care about is winning and winning at all costs. And if that means that they have to accept an African-American man who had, you know, and gave paid for an abortion, then that's what they're going to do. But he not only did that, he lied brazenly on Fox News, said he didn't know the woman, and it turns out that he had a child uh, with this woman. Yeah, Fox News, lying station. Why, why not have one more liar? <laughs> the liars interviewing the liars, I guess. Exactly. I, I'm just like, I'm not surprised by that. I mean, why, why would he tell the truth on Fox News? He, Fox News doesn't require you to tell the truth, right? No. Well, but this is what I find puzzling, Anthea, is that it wasn't that long ago, in October 2016, when we all saw the Access Hollywood tape of Trump bragging about grabbing women by the private parts. And there was an expectation that that would do him in. And a number of Republicans, including Mike Pence, went public denouncing Trump. But now, six years later, the only Republican denouncing Herschel Walker is his own son. That's correct. And I think it brings up a bigger point that, you know, women are expendable to Republicans. They are expendable in so many ways. We can take away their reproductive rights. It doesn't matter whether they, you know, you paid for an abortion for them or not. It doesn't matter if you grab them in ways that are unseemly. They are just, you know, material objects to the bigger plan of patriarchy and leadership. And so I don't think it should surprise anybody that we're at this pass or that they're willing, even Republican women are willing to take, you know, Herschel Walker because they also know that that's how they're treated all the time. And clearly they're down with it because they have not moved from being Republican. 
So are the Democrats fooling themselves, thinking that they're on a roll because of the Supreme Court banning abortion? Well, that I that- think, yeah, I do. I mean, I think that, you know, while that that helped in Kansas, and it might help, you know, we, we've noticed that noted that it's helped with in terms of women registering to vote. The real tale will come on November the 8th. I don't know that, you know, it won't change. And so I think that what becomes very important right now is that Democrats solidify their messaging, that they get behind their candidates, that they make sure to shore them up, and that, you know, it's not just Herschel Walker, but, you know, I live in Pennsylvania. We have a very big, you know, race right now between Fetterman and Dr. Oz. That's going to be a big, you know, piece that's also going to decide the Senate, right? So I think it's these kinds of races that Democrats need to pay attention to and pour all of their efforts into, because if they get back the House and the Senate, all bets are off. We don't have a 1-6 committee anymore. We have, you know, countless kinds of Benghazi hearings of all the people who try to investigate 1-6. We will never get at what happened with those documents that Trump took to his house. I mean, the, the list goes on and on, Right. So, I mean, this is a crucial election for democracy. It's not, you know, I used to think it was going to be 2024. It's actually 2022. So in your state with the Fetterman versus Oz race, how do you conduct a reality-based campaign, you know, post-Truth America, where you wonder exactly what percentage of the public deal with reality? Well, that's that's a hard thing. And I think one of the things that it's very hard for Democrats to do, we have tons of commercials running now. But the fact of the matter is those commercials need to be running in different places. They need to be on Facebook. They need to be on YouTube. They need to be in different spots because all of these people who are listening to people like Dr. Oz or Herschel Walker are in a totally different media ecosphere. They are not on, you know, regular news channels like ABC or NBC and all of that. They're in their own silos. And if you're going to start to reach people with this kind of messaging, then you have to be where they are. And I'm not sure the Democrats are where they are. And I think that's one of the major problems right now is that I don't know how they're going to get this messaging out when everything is, you know, so siloed and and so, you know, outside of, you know, the normal kinds of streams that Democrats are used to being into, right? I think that becomes really important. Let me give you an example about what I mean by that. Um, Somebody just sent me today, um, Governor Kemp in Georgia sent, sat down and talked with African-American men who were businessmen. Where is Stacey Abrams? So that looks bad, right? And Stacey Abrams is running behind in Georgia right now for governor. I think Democrats have to reinvent the wheel here, but it may be too too late and the wheels may roll over them. I think she's something like 20 points behind, isn't she? Uh-huh. And, and nobody would have ever thought that she would be that much behind, right? Mm. But yeah, it's not so easy. Well, but Warnock is, what, pretty neck and neck, right? Yeah, yeah, he's, he's neck and neck. You know, I think Warnock can pull it off. But mm. I think Stacey Abrams will not win this election. You, I've, I've said it in public, so I'll stick with it. I don't think she's going to win. So, as a professor of religion, Anthea Butler, Warnock, of course, is a religious leader and a pastor of a very important church. And he's up against a guy whose sins are are incredibly apparent. And, and of course, not only has he sinned, he he continues to bear false witness and break the fifth commandment or whatever. So, it's a bit of a parody. But if Herschel Walker genuinely wanted to repent, then he probably would get even more votes, but he doesn't. I mean, he's, he's a liar. And the mechanism in the media like Fox that support him is a liar's mill. They're a propaganda machine. Yeah. So this is what's happening. So, so the question then arises about religion itself in this country. Is there any way to sort of recapture the essence of the Bible and the prophet Jesus as an example to sort of force or shame people into recognizing what the true story is. I gotta, uh, I gotta admit to you that I don't think so. I mean, I think, you know, it, it's at this moment where religion has been so corrupted and, and I don't mean corrupted in a way. I mean, religion can be interpreted in lots of different ways, but I think that it's very difficult to talk about that pure message of Jesus when the, these people who are supposed to be representatives of Jesus have messed it up so poorly. 
I'm not sure this is a conversation that people want to hear anymore. If we think about, you know, recent surveys that have talked about in 20 years, Christians will be the minority in this country, then I think it's it part of that has to a lot to do with what we're seeing right now in terms of what's happening with religion and political parties. So yeah. when I often complain saying that the prophet Jesus didn't hate homosexuals, didn't celebrate capital punishment, didn't fly around in private jets and shake down poor people for money. And the, the, by the way, there's a one of these t- televangelists now, he's shaking down a guy who won a lottery ticket. Claiming <laughs> I don't, I can believe that. I he wants, that. he wants the hundred million plus winnings. I mean, they're shameless. So I'm just whining. Is that what's going on? I'm, there's no point in pointing out the hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I just think that at this moment, there's so much hypocrisy going on. It used to be, we just had to worry about the prosperity gospel preachers, right? But now we have to worry about politicians who operate like prosperity gospel preachers who just lie at will, right? And they're enablers. So it's it's a complete mess. It is a complete mess. And I think religion in America has to be the, the laughing stock of everyone in the world right now. I, and I can't imagine anybody thinking that this is a really good situation, except people who are in, also in autocracies like, you know, um, Erdogan or maybe you're not even Erdogan. But if we want to think about Hungary, we could think about that or, or somebody like Bolsonaro who would look at this and think that this was the best thing ever. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're going down that road if we're not already there. So is it going to take uh, the second coming of Jesus to come back and smite these apostates? Uh, honestly, Jesus is not coming back to this mess. This is a mess we're going to have to fix ourselves. <laughs> Too much of a mess for Jesus? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, why would you come back? If you were Jesus, would you come back? Right. Well, I just wonder what can be done, though, because I mentioned post-truth America. It's It's just frightening to think that people are in their own silos and they do their own reality shopping and they they only talk among themselves or either you know liberals go to msnbc conservatives to fox there's no consensus about what is real and what is true anymore yeah, i just don't no. know how you can operate a country you, you uh, let can't. alone a you superpower can't. that way no you can't it, it's just the, it's sad i mean you know, I would have never said that we look kind of like North Korea in a way, but in a way we do because there's some lies keep that regime together, right? And in this particular case, we have a whole segment of people who believe a lie, and we have a former president who talks about QAnon all the time. What are you What are you going to do? This is This is a problem. Houston, <laughs> this is a problem. I know it's a big problem. I, I, I feel like. Uh... Beam me up, you know. Yeah, exactly. I think the only way this gets resolved is some kind of way. Like, um, you know, I joke about this a lot, but I say if the aliens come, maybe that's when the time we'll get all together on one page. I don't even know then. Well, Anthea Butler, I thank you very much for joining us here today. You're welcome, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Anthea Butler, who's the Geraldine R. Siegel Professor in American Social Thought and Chair of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. She's the author of a number of books, including The Rise of the New Religious Right, and her most recent book is White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an assessment of what appears to be this election year's October surprise with Mohammed bin Salman and Vladimir Putin colluding to raise the price of gas ahead of the midterm election to hurt Biden and the Democrats and to help bring back Trump to the presidency in Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from the UK is David Hurst, the editor of Middle East Eye, who formerly was the chief foreign leader writer of The Guardian, former associate foreign editor, former European editor, Moscow bureau chief, and European correspondent, and island correspondent of The Guardian. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Hurst. Hello, Ian. Hi. Thanks for joining us, David. And there's been quite a 
an angry reaction from some U.S. lawmakers on the Democratic side uh, to the announcement by OPEC Plus on Wednesday that they're cutting oil production by 2 million barrels a day. This, of course, initiative was led by Saudi Arabia and Russia, Putin and MBS. And uh, the uh, Senator Murphy has expressed outrage, quoting him, I think it was a mistake on their part, and I think it's time for a wholesale re-evaluation of the U.S. alliance with Saudi I think you've got to be careful to do business with the Saudis these days. And I went on to say, I just don't think that I just don't know what the point of our current alliance is if we have to work so hard to get the Saudis to do the right thing. And then Tom Malinowski and a number of Congress members have also introduced legislation asking for a withdrawal of all U.S. troops from Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates in in response to what they describe as a hostile act by Saudi Arabia and the EAU. And Malinowski went on to say, if Saudi Arabia and the UAE want to help Putin, they should look for him for their defense. Uh, And they called OPEC's decision a turning point in our relationship with our Gulf partners and a slap in the face after President Biden tried to repair the relationships recently with the infamous fist bump. So is this the October surprise that we've had often in American politics, sometimes real, sometimes imagined? where a foreign actor at the last minute pulls some sort of geopolitical stunt that affects the U.S. elections, as in the case of the Iranians taking the hostages, which helped defeat Jimmy Carter and bring Ronald Reagan into the White House. Well, I, I mean, I can understand American democratic congressional anger. There have been lots and lots of instances, not just this one, for America to doubt uh, whether there was any really reciprocal uh, feeling uh, of all the huge military aid that um, that America has been given has been giving the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, but it really shouldn't be a surprise. President Joe Biden was advised by his top officials not to make that trip to uh, Riyadh recently. Uh, you know, the infamous uh, fist bump, and he got nothing uh, really in 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 return for it. Um, they tried to sell the idea that they'd got, Israel had got overflight rights for its airlines, but really that had been decided uh, a, a long time before, and that wasn't actually in America's interests anyway. It was oil, and there was absolutely no assurances given that... Uh, Saudi would increase the production of oil as as America wanted in 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 response to the phenomenal disruption of oil and gas markets that's been created by Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Indeed, uh, it was significant that uh, President Xi Jinping was given a much warmer personal reception by uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. Uh, than Joe Biden got. And that was an indication that uh, they really weren't listening, or he really wasn't listening. The de facto ruler of the kingdom was not listening to Biden. I think their relationship has been bedeviled by uh, a whole number of uh, instances, but particularly a series of court cases that have been going on in, in D.C. involving either the widow and NGOs campaigning for justice for the murder of the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi in the consulate in in Istanbul in 2018, but also a case involving a former Saudi intelligence officer, Saad al-Jabri, who is alleged, among other things, that MBS ordered the Tiger Squad, his, his killer squad, to kill him in Toronto, in Canada. And the squad, of course, was intercepted um, and, and sent back by the Canadian authorities. Now, he uh, has a case in, in the courts in Washington, which was dismissed by the judge, who didn't try the, the merits of the case, but simply said that the court was not, he was not convinced that the, this case should be tried uh, in the U.S. He's now appealing against that decision, and... Uh, a campaign for his two children, Sarah and Omar, 
who are unlawfully imprisoned in the kingdom also said that uh, they disagreed with the court's decision. So there's that thing going ahead and, and an appeal against it. And the second case is a lawsuit against MBS over the kidding of Jamal Khashoggi, uh, brought by his widow and an NGO called Dawn. Now there, the, the question is whether MBS has immunity as crown prince. And um, about 10 days ago, or two weeks ago, um, the, the crown prince made himself, in effect, uh, it was a Saudi royal cre- uh, decree, but he was behind it, prime minister, which means, it, and he was accused of title washing, uh, with, uh, but it was a move calculated to seal his immunity. Now, the Biden administration has been delaying offering its opinion. It, it, it was due to offer its opinion on, on whether or not MBS had immunity on October the 3rd and, and now delayed that thing again for the, for the last time. So while all these court cases are going on, it's pretty impossible to have a bilateral relationship uh, with, uh, with the Crown Prince, who takes these matters extremely personally. And so, I'm, so my reading is that this is not a surprise at all, that, that Saudi Arabia is waiting to see the back of Biden and the Democrats and he'll have a much smoother relationship with whoever follows him, who presumably be uh, a Republican. And they feel in a quite strong position, by the way. It's not America that's calling the shots to Saudi Arabia. It's Saudi Arabia that's calling the shots to America. There are lots of other reasons why, for instance, I don't think, although it, uh, I completely understand the feeling of rage and anger uh, amongst uh, uh, the Democrats, uh, I'm completely with them on their feeling. But there's, there's no way that uh, America, uh, or let's say the uh, Department of Defense, would pull their troops out of Saudi Arabia, purely, or or even the UAE, for for grounds of destabilizing a power balance in in the Gulf. They simply wouldn't do it, um, particularly not because, because all of this is based on pushing back Iran's projection of, 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 of power. And, you know, if they can't agree on, on a nuclear deal with Iran when Iran wants one, um, they're certainly not going to pull their troops out of, uh, of Saudi Arabia or the UAE, particularly as Iran is now providing uh, drones to Putin uh, for use in, in, in the Ukraine. There's just no way that's going to happen. So in the real world, I don't think this is going to get anywhere. But um, I could be wrong. Well, in the real world... Mohammed bin Salman is helping Putin, essentially, in his war in Ukraine, which is being financed by the price of oil, which they've helped raise by cutting production. And that's the questions that U.S. lawmakers are making. And in fact, the three congressmen that introduced this legislation asking for the withdrawal of all U.S. troops from Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates on Wednesday, they said that the United States should resume acting like the superpower in our relationship with our client states in the Gulf. Short of pulling out protections and troops and Patriot missiles and THADs, etc., is there anything the U.S. can do? Because it's it's obvious that you're absolutely right that uh, MBS is waiting for Trump to come back or the Republicans who seem to be totally in favor of MBS and also in many ways of Putin. So that's the situation that we have. And of course, Trump is the very person who helped elevate MBS and leapfrog over the original crown prince, uh, Mohammed bin Nef. So there's a favor owed there, is there not, along with the obvious close relationship that Trump had with the Saudis, making his first foreign trip abroad to Saudi Arabia. And then since he was uh, booted out of office, even though he's uh, pretending he wasn't, his son-in-law received $2 billion as a, almost as a gift from uh, the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of that is true. The, it, Biden never really went for uh, Mohammed bin Salman. He was always more rhetorical than he was making serious measures to hold Mohammed bin Salman responsible uh, for the crimes he's undoubtedly uh, committed. Um, when, when the, if you remember, when the CIA report uh, came out that actually uh, said that uh, 
they thought that MBS was responsible, personally responsible for 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 ordering the killing of uh, Khashoggi, and that was published for the first time uh, under Biden. The U.S. had the option of pushing the investigation of this case towards the U.N., and it notably declined to do that. And that was for all the reasons that we have been talking about, that the U.S. regards, or any U.S. president regards the relationship, the military relationship with Saudi Arabia as strategic. And for a time, the Biden administration uh, tried to maintain, or it's increasingly impossible to do so, that their real relationship was with the king, the almost silent King Salman, and the state, not with its erratic uh, crown prince. And now it's absolutely impossible to do that. There's only one guy in charge of Saudi Arabia, and that's the, the man who's now made himself uh, prime minister. So what's happening is that Biden's attempt to navigate his relationship with uh, Saudi Arabia is falling apart. Um, and it's fallen between two stools. One is pure realpolitik of, of, of just basically um, ignoring the fact that, that the, the killings took place against a, 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 against a, a resident in America. Um, as Macron, uh, Emmanuel Macron, the, the president of France, and, and, and an awful lot of other European leaders have done, or to go full tilt and, 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 and order a criminal inquiry uh, um, or back a criminal inquiry in the U.S., which, uh, in the U.N., which uh, Biden has also refused to do. So it's really fallen between two stools. And in a world where there's so much other disruption going on and, uh, you know, there, there are real, real fears of Putin um, letting off tactical nuclear warheads in, in Ukraine, this other bit of chaos if you like, would be seen as uh, definitely uh, 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 not a priority because there's just too much else going on that, that is swamping the intrays of um, the Department of Defense and, 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 and all the main uh, intelligence agencies in, in, in Washington. There's simply too much going on that, 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 that could be a massive disruption. So for that reason, I, I really don't think this is going to get anywhere, but is there anything else that they could do? Well, they had the wrong policy in the first place. They should have either done one thing or the other. And the second thing is that this is another sign of America's continuing loss of authority in the U.S. I mean, one thing that should be considered and that in Britain and America, uh, the media simply do not recognize is that most of the world is not carrying out sanctions against Putin uh, for Ukraine. India is not doing it. China obviously is, is not doing it, but, but quite apart from that, there are, there are whole continents, uh, South Africa, Africa, Latin America, that is not sanctioning Putin for the, for, uh, for the war in, uh, for having invaded uh, Ukraine. Turkey is not doing that either. In fact, Turkey hosts and regularly achieves what limited negotiations there are between Ukraine and Russia, and, and Turkey has just succeeded in, in getting a very large prisoner swap, including of American prisoners. So uh, everyone uh, Saudi Arabia had a role in that, David. Sorry? Saudi Arabia had a role in this. And Saudi Arabia had a role in that as well. So yeah. that's the other side of the coin. It, it doesn't fit the, the description, that the, the, the black and white description that we're getting in, in either the US or the British media, for that matter, Right, but, but David, it's one thing not to support the sanctions against Russia. It's another thing to openly side with Russia, which is what the Saudis are doing. So, And that's what U.S. lawmakers are angry about. Why is this so-called ally of ours working to help Putin against Ukraine and against NATO and the United States? Well, you know, the Saudis are pursuing their national interests which is to uh, keep their income going uh, as high as possible. And what, we are, what we're living with is, is, is a world where everyone pursues their own national interests. And, and they're much, much less willing to be told what to do. Even America, specifically, America's allies are basically, with loss of authority of, of America over 
in a, in, a, in a number of uh, fields of interest uh, and, and also in, in over a number of years, America's allies are basically going their own way. I mean, particularly Israel, but others are as well. And, and Saudi Arabia is, is, is one of them. So, so is the UAE. The UAE, even though the UAE, was, their, their ports were bombed by Iranian drones, they never blamed Iran for carrying out their drone attacks. But Iran established a, a measure of deterrence over Aramco and also over the oil facilities in, in, in the UAE. And the result is that the UAE is, uh, has, has now returned its ambassador to uh, Iran. This is in, in defiance or contrary to America's perceived policy, but, you know, America is losing control of the Gulf, and, 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 and Saudi Arabia is, is, is going the same way as quite a lot of Gulf countries. It's not anti-American, but it's not going to be told by America what to do anymore. So just in closing, is there anything that, uh, if the Biden administration can't do anything as oil prices and the price of gasoline rises just before the elections and will definitely hurt the Democrats and Biden... If they can't do anything about that, can Wall Street do anything about stopping investment in this vanity project of Mohammed bin Salman to build this modern city, uh, which is just is an outrage when you think about all the money they make and the money that this guy has control over, uh, which is... I, com- uh, I completely agree with you, Ian, but they've always been in bed with Saudi Arabia, even during the, the, the height of the Khashoggi scandal. Uh, there was a supreme reluctance of any of the main financial institutions to boycott what was then known as Davos in the desert, if you remember. He just had too much money on offer and too many contracts. And morality is about the last thing on their mind. It's, uh, and also uh, the scale of Saudi investments in America, but also here in Britain, would, if they were withdrawn would severely hurt the British housing market as well. So, so, so Saudi Arabia is just too, too big a financial player in the markets and offers too many contracts for, for them to be boycotted in any serious way by the institutions in, in Wall Street. And that is, that, that's not down to Biden. That's also beyond his control. It, it, it is down to their greed and avarice. Right. And a lot of the contracts, of course, are for military equipment. So yeah, yeah, I thank yeah. you for joining us here today, David. I appreciate it. Okay, thanks, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with David Hurst. He's in the UK where he's the editor of the Middle East Eye. He was formerly the chief foreign leader writer of The Guardian, former associate foreign editor, European editor, Moscow bureau chief, European correspondent and Ireland correspondent for The Guardian. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past